Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and we're on the road with the Global Listening Project, this time in Singapore, looking at trust in technology, artificial intelligence, mRNA, and what the future of the internet is for young people and older people. Well, our guests today are Professor Heidi Larson, who is professor at the University of Washington. She's also the founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project and, of course, the co-founder of the Global Listening Project. Hi, Heidi. How are you doing? Good morning. Nice to see you, Ben. (laughs) Nice to see you from Singapore. We're also joined, and I'm really delighted to welcome her first time on the show and definitely not the last, um, Dr. Lisa Lin, who is the Senior Research Director at the Laboratory of Data Discovery for Health at the Hong Kong University. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, good morning, Ben, and hi, good morning, Heidi. Now, although it looks like we are sitting in different rooms all around the world, and I happen to be in California, you are both in Singapore, right? You're actually in the same hotel. That's right. (laughs) Yep, we are attending the same roundtable. So let's then kick off, if we may. Heidi, so here we are, Global Listening Project in Singapore, What is it about the city-state that makes it so interesting for you to kick off this process of sharing early data that we're finding through the Global Listening Project? Well, one of the key uh, areas of investigation and listening that we're doing in the Global Listening Project is around trust in technology because technology was it was throughout the the COVID response, and we expected a lot of publics in terms of everything from vaccine passes to tra- trace trace and track to uh, making appoint vaccine appointments, um, and then and that's in the whole uh, information technologies. But also, there were a lot of new innovations in in health. Uh, itself, health, uh, including the vaccines, the whole mRNA platform is a whole new type of, I mean, there's been a decade of research behind it. It's not like it was invented overnight, which was what it felt like um, because it was so (laughs) kind of abruptly introduced from in the public, but it's been uh, in, in development and in research for a decade. And that too was brand new to the public as a new type of vaccine. So we wanted to, I mean, in a time of acute uncertainty like this pandemic was, as the virus itself was evolving, all these new things were a lot to manage. And some people uh, were able to do it better than others for access reasons, for um, digital literacy reasons, for age reasons. Um, so we're really um, looking at that as a key area of investigation. And why Singapore? Well, Singapore is a uh, an amazing small um, state uh, nation nation state. <laughs> On the other hand, it's incredibly vibrant, um, a real regional hub of innovation. Um, and since we have a, a growing uh, Asian presence in different places, including our collaboration with uh, Lisa's lab, um, as well as multiple other countries, it's a, it's a great um, regional center for us. I'm uh, also a visiting press professor here, and two of the institutes that we are most connected to are the Lloyd's Register Institute for Public Understanding of Risk, and the Center for Trust in the Internet and Community. And they co-hosted this roundtable and brought together an amazing group of, of people from areas of strategic foresight to computer science, science to pandemic response to um, uh, also uh, in the in trust and, and risk. So we'll come on to the uh, the roundtable in a minute. Um, but Lisa, so I, I got the name of your uh, laboratory correct. What is it that it does? Uh, so it's a lab that is uh, funded by the Hong Kong government, a five-year grant from Hong Kong government looking to translate research findings into uh, commercializable uh, products. 
And the team I'm leading at is uh, is focusing on use, utilizing big data and artificial intelligence in um, promoting or address uh, promoting vaccine confidence and addressing uh, vaccine hesitancy and related misinformation. So uh, the lab has been uh, around since 2020. Uh, incidentally, that was the time that when COVID hit, uh, but we we were able to like take that opportunity and then respond quickly, creating robot, uh, like conversational AI chatbot uh, and other like uh, gadgets for fact-checking, et cetera. So, uh, so that, and we, we implemented, uh, we use implementation science research, looking at evaluation, effectiveness, visibility, and scalability. So, and so that's, uh, that's where we are. You're particularly interest, interested in the role of digital media and social platforms um, as a way of helping uh, the GLP understand perceptions of risk and perceptions of preparedness for um, emergencies as they as they happen. Um, and, and so just a couple of quick questions for you. How embedded um, is uh, the latest technology, these technologies, in ma major urban areas in Asia, um, and how embraced are they? I would say that, well, um, well, so my background is in communication and behavioral sciences. And then during COVID, I would say that it uh, it sort of coincides, COVID sort of coincides with the development of uh, adoption of AI and big data and definitely uh, offer us an opportunity to uh, utilize social media, especially with the lockdown and everything. So that, you know, uh, this is unprecedented compared to the previous pandemics, which is H1N1. Uh, we see that huge like, uh, growth in the adoption and the use. And never be, uh, before that we saw uh, it was required to, for example, have a have an app on the phone for like a vaccine checkup for your, you know, how many track how many vaccines, how many doses that you have taken. So this is all unprecedented. So we are in the in the very particular time. Um, and so in in these countries, uh, like uh, in city states, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, they embrace it fully. Uh, I think uh, COVID seems to offer an opportunity for digitalization. And then uh, for these uh, places, um, they are well positioned before COVID to uh to to embrace new technology but then i think covid sort of giving the opportunity to take it to the next level and given that the vibrant community in tech already existed uh before and during covid is sort of make it into a really well positioned so i would just take uh give you one example for example um from what i know like hong kong you like in november 2022 um it was ChatGPT uh, was introduced. I think some there have been, it caused a huge debate between in academia and government, etc. How are we going to handle this? This is like going viral. Um, for Hong Kong U, for example, they take on this and then allowing uh, encouraging students and scholars and researchers to use API despite it's not like readily available to the public. So I think what what in Singapore I think they are doing taking the same approach. We are trying to understand it's coming, but how do we use it responsibly, and how do we like be able to carefully introduce it to the public and regulate it instead of just banning it and reject it completely. So I would say that it's been um, quite exciting to see this is happening. But then obviously there are, there are differences in the countries, especially in Asian countries, in how they respond to it. But the city states and the cities that you you're referring to happen to be uh, quite ready to take take it on. Well, I, I hope we can really do a deep dive into this in the in the course of this podcast. But I, I hope you will both excuse me if I ask um, a silly question, a stupid question. Um, we're recording this. Just as Apple TV is uh, coming to the end of its second season of its dramatization of Foundation by Isaac Asimov. And um, Heidi, I was catching up with episodes uh, last night um, after our recent trip to Nigeria. And um, in one of the episodes, um, it made reference to 
um, Isaac Asimov's um, Three Laws of Robotics, which um, have had a huge cultural influence. Those three laws are no harm to humans, um, obey humans, and for the, the robot, the AI, whatever, to protect itself as long as it doesn't harm humans. And, and I've always thought that was a really neat summary of protections that would make sense for artificial intelligence. Or in general. <laughs> in general, yeah. But do you think, do you think we, with this flourishing of AI that we're seeing, do you think we're prepared for all of this? Do you think we're prepared for what's coming? No. Um, Or I shouldn't say no so flatly because I think it really depends on where you live and who you are. And that's one of the things we've really, um, we've really seen in our global listening is how different the settings are and quite unexpected places like, you know, as you mentioned, just recently the global listening in Lagos, uh, there were, you know, people were in, especially younger people, embracing the new technology and felt like, you know, educationally, actually, they did much better during COVID because of the technology um, and in ways that they didn't fully utilize in the classroom. Um, and, and in other places, uh, it, you know, education has fallen behind for, di- for different reasons. Um, so it's impacted uh, people in different ways. And I think when we think about these technologies, it's really um, partly, as Lisa said, what the readiness, what the environment is, what the willingness to take risks. That's another piece of it that, um, you know, I think uh, um, I, the UK, for instance, is hugely risk averse. Um, in my experience, when it comes to new, you know, moving forward, uh, working with new things, Europe also is is probably one of the more regulated environments. But that's not all bad. I think that there are good reasons for that. Um, but sometimes uh, regulation for brand new things that you don't really know where the edges are. Um, it's it's not great to regulate too much because it can um, really uh, interrupt, not in positive disruptive ways, but it can halt some of the important aspects of innovation. So I think, uh, as Lisa was saying, this approach of being open to it and exploring it, but with a cautious eye to some boundaries, I mean, like the ones that you highlight (laughs) from um, the foundation series um, is is really important. I mean, I remember in the one of the last times I was in Hong Kong, it happened to coincide with the time there were the big debates about the uh, use uh, by the Chinese scientists with the CRISPR technology. And I'll never forget this quote that he had, which was, "But I didn't break any rules," and he was right. There were none at the time. So I think that. Um, there are different levels of readiness. I think we, in many settings, we were not ready for this. Um, And there are are big, big debates within the technology community about um, the timing of GPT. AI movement, yeah. Well, AI has been around for a while, but this new particular aspect of it that has been made public uh, there are a number of people in the technology world that feel like too soon we because they you know they felt that we're, we we are in the technology community very aware that there still are risks um, that needed to be you know ironed out um, that could take people off piste in, in not good ways um, but you know it's finding that balance and and at this point, it's too late to turn back because it's out there. Um, I think it just needs a, a close eye on it. So partly ready, not fully ready to answer your question <laughs> and needs a lot of a cautious eyes on it while giving space. Lisa, your take on it. And I'm sort of slightly 
uncertain how to ask this, given the context of you being in Hong Kong. But but your sense of the future for um, for AI, for GPT, and particularly its potential for health. So I would say that uh, I would say that similar to the event of uh, innovations like the internet, smartphones, social media. You know, I I think that we see that uh, AI brings boundless opportunities. Um, however, uh, there are always risks involved. Um, and then I think even before those innovations, I've seen that one art, uh, one photo actually back in maybe it was the 60s or 70s, um, there were protests against calculators. So for the same reasons. So they start worrying about math teacher being out of job and etc. So I think that there are always risks and fears around new innovations that might change human behavior and change how we do things. But then uh, as we see that from these uh, from these events and innovations, there's no turning back. So it's really about, I would I totally echo what uh, Heidi were saying, that it's really about how we pay it close attention to what is happening. How do we allow it to like grow, but then at the same time, bring it to be responsible. Um, I also think that um, let allowing it to be applied to healthcare and even the public health context um, is inevitable. Uh, as like uh, as we already know that you know if we counting on human capacity, human get tired, human get in, uh, uh, like a memory, like a short term memory, or like you know even like a longer term like memory you know, fatigue, etc. But AI wouldn't. So you were the the you were yeah. mentioning of the three laws remember, remind me of an old movie, I Robot, long time ago. Um, that also was, based on Isaac Asimov's. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was totally about these. Like it was. It, so this this debate and this thinking is not new. That movie was I don't know ten fifteen years ago, uh, and still extremely relevant. So I think we are just uh, we didn't know that. It will come until it actually happened last year. So, uh, so I think that it's time for us to come together to look at it. But what I would say is, from the data point of view, um, because uh, since the GP, uh, GPT became available last year, um, of course, the fact that our team studies trust and confidence uh, on vaccine quickly jump into trust and confidence in AI. So we're looking at global sentiments around um, around artificial intelligence in general, and and definitely uh, GPT in general. I would say that uh, and total uh, is very aligned with what Heidi just shared. Um, take keep in mind that social media data, Twitter posts are mostly used by a certain demographic, which are younger and and more ready to embrace technology, and the overall sentiment is quite positive. They are definitely showing anxiety and concerns over about job replacement, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and then how uh, and then the comparison between um, human performance and AI performance. That's a huge. That's actually the number one debate topic. Um, but at the same time, there were also we also see excitement. They start to talk. A lot of people sharing like what AI can do, and then the potentials of creating text, um, images, and things that in the speed and the quality that in the past would have taken months or years to do. So I think that, um, I think I think we might be going into that topic later on, but then there's definitely uh, age disparities in this. Um, there are definitely um, some regional debate uh, into it. I think some countries are more ready than the other. Some certain demographic is more ready than the other. But I would say that, uh, uh, is n there's no turning back, so embrace. Uh, I would say that embrace it with cautious would be our approach, and that's what we are trying to do right now. Um, looking at artificial intelligence, GPT's potential in applying to research activities. How do we regulate it? How do we make sure that it's scientifically feasible? And then how do we make sure that it uh, fulfill like uh, some of the tasks that it might take us months or years to do for data, a very repetitive, boring, 
like uh, manual laboring uh, work, but then now being replaced by AI. Whereas it might free liberate us uh, as a social scientist to allow us for thinking and then the time and space to really give our expert opinions without being tied up in the more like a tiring task. But that's a, that's our hope. I think this will require a lot of interdisciplinary approach in looking at AI as an industry in general, and definitely looking at how public uh, confidence and acceptance around this issue. Over Do you know, there is no question that um, this is the uncharted territory. It's it's perfect territory, Heidi, for the Global Listening Project. Um, and I know that, you know, we are uh, really intrigued about how this is all going to play out as uh, communities, people build resilience and preparedness for the uh, emergencies that are very likely to be around uh, uh, around us. But but coming back to the roundtable, Heidi, you're doing something I think is very interesting and, and sort of slightly counterintuitive to the usual presentation of academic data. Uh, GLP is close to completing this um, uh generation of data through focus groups in 70 countries around attitudes um, and perceptions um, around around preparedness and particularly societal preparedness. And you've called it the Societal Preparedness Index. And I, I guess we're going to be planning to launch it formally um, at the beginning of next year. But in the meantime, what you are doing is trailing and previewing some of the findings uh, with uh, roundtables like the one you've just had in Singapore with, you know, some extraordinary leaders and commentators. And before getting into the data you you actually did present, what's your thinking around doing this sort of quiet rollout rather than waiting for the big smells and bells and trumpets launch? Um, and, uh, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Well, I guess one of the um, most important reasons is that anything can happen any day. And as one of our advisory board members, um, uh, Asi, who's uh, co-chairing, was co-chairing the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, uh, reminded us, he said, we worked so hard at making a beautiful, shiny report, World at Risk, and then a few months um before COVID hit, and the report really didn't have a chance to get open and and digested. Um, and he and some others in the group and I, I um, we were already thinking of it this way, but it became very, uh, uh, very much part of our mantra was to listen. And we want to listen from the very early data because also it can help our our analysis. Um, our different roundtables are going to be in different settings. And we here in Singapore, it was on technology. We'll be doing a roundtable um, in Senegal and in Dakar at the Gates Grand Challenges. And that will be, we'll give the global look, but really a closer look at Africa data and learnings and get feedback from that um, audience and, and engagement uh, in Tokyo. Um, for the Japan work, again, we'll give a, a look at the global situation, but then more deep dive. And we're picking a number of settings. Tokyo is one of them where we'll be doing a more deep dive look. Um, New York City is another one where we will um, uh, be looking more deeply. So we'll have another roundtable there bringing our data, but also inviting other people who we know are collecting relevant data or are working in relevant fields um, that we can make sure that we're kind of sense making and also you know asking what's your feedback what questions would you how would you want to interrogate this data what would be useful to you from this data as we move forward with our analysis because we have a massive amount of data uh, along with all the sociodemographic um, data around who's speaking and where. Um, and so we want to, one, make it as useful as possible, but also make sure that we're not missing uh, insights that others can give us. And 
it was fantastic yesterday. I mean, we we shared both some of the quantitative sur- survey results um, as well as from our qualitative focus groups and, and interviews. And there was really valuable feedback in, aside from people being quite um, pretty impressed with the nature and scope of the work. Um, but we uh, they helped us ask, think of some very important questions. It's always risky to show a piece of work without having it fully ready and out there. Um, so it's been a bit of risky behavior on our. Um, but you know what, Heidi? It sort of makes me. So. <laughs> it makes me think that this is the democratization of data. It's it's yes, not something absolutely. that um, yeah. you know the academics are holding on to. It's how does it feel? How does it relate to you? Exactly. So, so what yeah. were the top lines that you shared yesterday? What were the things that really stood out to you? Well. Uh, it was very interesting um, looking at different apps that are available. I mean, the kind of things that people seem to be the most comfortable with, we're not only talking about usage, but uh, sharing willingness to share personal data because for a lot of the new kind of therapeutics and and work happening in the medical technologies and, and science is will depend on having um, uh, genetic information from people to make it more personalized, more uh, specific to their condition. Um, And so it's going to be important to understand how much people are willing to share uh, and for whether it's just for them or are they willing to share for the benefit of research and for others more broadly. Um, And there was a lot of anxiety around certain sharing certain types of data. Um, But the one they seem most comfortable with was this smart scale, you know, people who have ambitions in their weight loss programs and want to share with others their progress and fitness apps, how much running I did today or whatever I did. Um, so stuff that was frankly related to body image, yeah. which is, um, I mean, you can see it as a, as a positive willingness, but it's also an area that's a bit risky because as as you know, and and one of the things we're very concerned about, particularly with younger cohort, is body shaming. Yeah, and we have to be very careful with this one because, you know, we're getting a read on willingness to share, but the motives, you know, there's a lot of surveys and research out there on, you know, would you do this or would you do that or how much do you use? But I think the real critical question that we need to understand. Um, is motive. Um, what's the motive? If you're doing it because it's for the benefit of others, is it? are you doing it because you're proud and happy about it? Or are you doing that to shame others? And that's, that's I mean, you talked about um, self versus other uh, with, the, with the series. Um, that's something we, we want to really, especially more in our deep dives. I mean, even things like trust, um, we think of trust as a good thing. Well, depends what you trust and who you trust and why you trust, because there are, as they say, some bad actors and some, uh, you know, well-meaning actors, um, and ones that are good for your health and ones that are not good for your health. I mean, that's one of the things I I was listening or watching in via Zoom on the the discussion, and that's what really stood out to me. A comment you made about trust is not always a good thing. It's about, you know, trust in authority particularly may not be a good thing. Um, but I, I I wonder, Heidi, how does all of this relate to uh, people's preparedness for emergencies and crises? Is it about us understanding how people feel and think? Um, or are there other things going on? Well, our our survey and focus groups have particularly been asking about not just not just attitudes and perceptions but but experience um and how did they cope i mean what worked what didn't what could have helped make their experience better what were they frustrated by where were the where was the innovation because there are many indices and surveys and preparedness efforts out there but they rarely are talking about preparing people and the only way you know i have antibodies to deciding on how to prepare people sitting around a boardroom in Geneva or Washington or wherever without, I mean, maybe it's the anthropologist in me, 
But I think we have to, you know, if we are going to do something like an index on societal preparedness, that needs to be informed by people. That needs to be informed by the experience of people and how they prepared, what they were missing, how we can learn more, and how we can build on that experience. We've had a an experience in the last few years that ha- we haven't had, you know, in a century, and it was, and we've never had it when it when you consider it in the context of some of the new technologies. They didn't exist in the massive 1918 um, pandemic that rocked the world. They Quotes didn't it. happen in the early days of, of, of HIV. I, I think this is a story exactly. I, I might have shared with you both, but you know, a young activist blocking um, general practitioners, GPs, fax machines in the UK every Friday with what we thought were the latest data on new drugs that they ought to see and wasn't perhaps the most, the most helpful thing. Yeah. Lisa, what really what stood out to you in the data that's coming through? I would say that I um I think that one angle that we've been looking at I thought that would be quite critical and and relevant to this conversation would be the digital intelligence and the embracing of technology in the next societal preparedness like preparedness for the next pandemic or the large scale disasters because uh, we will see that this has been introduced another dimension of preparedness that was not. Uh, well like understood or laid out in previously i think that in the past we look at preparedness systems we're looking at governance we are looking at regulations are laws ready are we is the infrastructure ready uh even the um stockpile medical uh, readiness but then much less about you know I, as heidi said how to prepare the public um so if we are look bringing in societal preparedness then um trust in technology, trust in government, and then um, how do we get to them? Uh, when we have information, it's no longer a one-way conversation. Now, uh, one-way communication, it's a two-way com- uh, conversation, even group conversations on social media, on individual like uh, communication platforms that we've seen um, using apps, etc. So how do we uh, make it useful and then help people to make decisions that would be uh, promoting and protecting their own health instead of the other way around. I think this requires actually not only thinking about exterior like factors like like to individual, but also we need to start looking at uh, individual factors, the demographic like uh, like factors, how they influence that their prior experience with the government, prior experience with the people, with the community, um, pre-existing social capital, uh, things that we have seen being uncovered during COVID is that, you know, um, I remember one thing that uh, one discussion during uh, the roundtable was that uh, Heidi brought up um, supermarket were very important to some like a demographic, like women above like, 40, 45 in Delhi because it's important to their uh, social experience and and almost as an outlet during lockdown seasons. Um, so so things like that. And then we also found that at the beginning of COVID, I remember there was a huge shortage of masks and hand sanitizers. So people actually, I remember uh, even uh, at the time I was in Boston and then there were my colleagues in other part of the towns, they started to uh, create their own mask at home, trying to like, help supply house professionals. Imagine there was Boston. So like there was a shortage of a mask for surgical masks and for medical professional use. Then we started looking for like ways. So these are things that we did not see and anticipate before COVID, but then people come together and these show resilience and social capital. But how do we capture that? Um, and then how do we make sure? So, I think that maybe a podcast like this, maybe I, I think things like global listening would be continued to follow and, and uncover. I think this would be very important lessons to learn and to document and for us uh, to inform future preparedness. You, you are both um, very much pragmatic optimists and um, 
you know, seeing um, seeing the silver lining in every cloud. And, you know, Heidi, I, I, it's not a question I've had a chance to ask you in the past, but but we've come out of the pandemic phase of COVID. We're into hopefully the endemic phase. But do you think COVID made societal preparation did you think it makes it makes it easier, or has it made it harder? Are we are we getting worse at it? Well, I um, I don't. We won't know till the next one. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but we do have a huge opportunity, and I think I mean one of the reasons we've we've gotten so focused on on technology is it's something tangible that we can do is to use this peacetime before the next big one, or not even the, it doesn't even have to be the scale of COVID, but look at the number of natural disasters and other uh, crisis situations where you need public cooperation, you need people to connect. I mean, I think if there's one critical thing we need to do is ramp up the, the fluency and the access um, and in an age disaggregated way. Uh, here in Asia, it's very different issues than in Africa, for instance. Um, the you know the demographic shift and the rate of older people versus younger people here is dramatic, and it's kind of the opposite in, in Africa. Although fertility is reducing, you still have a largely young population. Here, you know, we had a. Um, unique situation where it was some of the elderly that were the vaccine refusers. Mm. And in Hong Kong, the highest rate of elderly refusing and dying um, of COVID in the world in Hong Kong. Who would have thought? Singapore, we have pockets of, and some of it was um, for different reasons, uh, feeling like I live alone and if something happens to me after that vaccination, it was interesting, I would have said, living alone, I wouldn't want to get COVID. And they were like, living alone, I don't want to see a reaction to this vaccine or traditional medicine or uh, the only thing I know about technology is my grandson showing me some scary thing on WhatsApp. Um, so I think that there there is an openness um, among older populations, but they we see, and that was part of the data we showed yesterday, the openness um, or the the fluency, the willingness goes down progressively after 55. But I think it's a matter of how we engage with that. And that's a task. And it's something we need to do soon is yeah. to, at the design level, sit with some of the tech companies, say, listen, you know, your TikTok and Instagram are being adopted like wildfire among young people, but let's see what we can do and what we can design, co-designed with some of uh, the older populations about what they need and what they're comfortable with. And um, I mean, one of my first anthropology jobs, as it were, was in Silicon Valley when Apple was introducing like one computer per classroom. And the, the new head of education there said, listen, we need your help in the uh, in the classrooms to understand why are some of the teachers resisting having a computer in the classroom, and so it's um, I think you know there's a lot of assumptions made even in tech companies in the evangelism about some of the new products, but not so much driven by what actually people need and want. So I think the more we can start to do that. Um, and think of it not just a new tool for everybody, but this is a new tool for certain populations. And I mean, you can use the same tool, but what you do on it would be different. I think we do need some kind of harmony. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I think it's a So don't knock those um, telephones designed for older people. Uh, what are they? The jitterbug telephones, uh, cell phones. But don't don't stigmatize them by calling them older people things. Well, that's no, another, no, that's another um, thing. No. We have to be. Yeah, <laughs> and and I particularly am uh, yeah. uh, very bad at that. But 
so, so Lisa, how do you square the circle between the uh, engagement and embracing of technology that you described at the start with the uh, anxiety of our senior elders about accessing, uh, how was that? Senior elders accessing and utilizing technology. Experienced. <laughs> Experienced, yeah. Yes. Forever teenagers. Yes. I think that, uh, so I think I'm going back to my preparedness uh, background, uh, which I started off and got me into a research career. Um, I think that this past pandemic, as disastrous as it was, um, past tense, um, it actually, the for the first time, I would say that, uh, at least in our recent memory, uh, uh, that the global population, like a citizen, we share one common experience, which is very uh, different from uh, when I first like started study like preparedness, which was two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You know, most of the disasters and they were like learn and be contained no matter how big or small it is was it only affecting a certain population but then this pandemic actually was so profound and so large and so long that now everybody knows what hand sanitizer is this do you know that you need to like do hand washing as soon as you get home you know that okay mask is expected as some at some level as in certain circumstances, you know that, you know, vaccine, you know, like all that, and you started to even understand, oh, what do you mean by a vaccine passport? So I think in terms of like human his experience, this is, I would say that this is a rare occasion that we do share um, around the globe. Um, and so I think there are a lot of things to unpack, but then there are different experiences like a because of their individual circumstances and context. I think there are things that we definitely need to learn from it. And then I would say that uh, for technology, we need to like tailor into that like human touch. Um, so I, I have a, a it's a more of a personal story. I had people obviously like experienced people like in their lives, they started to um, obviously, you wouldn't you'd not be surprised that they have been using their uh, should be out of date and, and their phone for the longest time until when I convinced them to to change is when their children or grandchildren travel abroad. They want to see them. So you when you have a smartphone, one button, you see your grandchild. Then they okay, this is amazing. So they learn how to use touch touch screen instead of the you know flip phone. So I think that you we need to understand their needs, and then you'll be able to find the nudge and then allow them to like start seeing the benefit of it. And then they would do this for their child. They would maybe not for their children, they for their grandchildren. Um, well, you know, a lot of things that, but it requires us to like to listen to really understand and then learn from their experience and to really find the needs. And I, I go back to um, Heidi's like approach about co-creating with the, the user experience and then the technology company to really understand. But I think that for them, it's a great market. It was an aging population. This is what we are dealing with. And then I think that for future preparedness, it's also extremely important for us to understand not just digital intelligence, but also like tech intelligence. Um, so that will I will end my note on it. So I we're coming up to the top of the hour, but I, we're recording this on the day after um, a terrible flooding took place um, on the coast of Libya, killing what up to five thousand people. We've just had yeah. that dreadful earthquake in um, Morocco. Um, and I just wonder how you see the role of technology, whether whether you you feel able to comment even at this early stage around how we can utilize technology to help us prepare and build back from these kind of natural disasters, which, you know, certainly as it relates to flooding, are only going to increase given the climate disruption that we're seeing. Well, I mean, I think there are a number of ways. Uh, one is finding people. Um, 
And even if they are not alive, frankly, um, if they have a phone on their body and somehow there's still a connection, I mean, in a flooding, um, I mean, phones are more waterproof than they used to be. Um, but, you know, things like GPS tracking, um, people sometimes are hesitant to be sharing all kinds of things, but many people are totally on with their GPS for mapping and other things. Um, so finding people, connecting people um, is, is one way. Um, it can help the search and find people, the people who are out there to communicate with each other. Um, there's a lot of ways that uh, it can be used. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there's there are different challenges with something like a flood. And because if it knocks the system out, there's going to be a limit to how, you know, you your battery life or whatever will last um, or, or your, your power. Um, but I think you have to look at the usefulness of these things, um, not by the instrument itself, but by the situation. So what are the problems we have to solve here? We need to find people as soon as possible. We need to understand, you know, the where this is going and what the impact has been. So we need to measure that. What are the different aspects? What are the needs? We have to assess the needs. Is it food? Is it water? Is it, is it you know, health? Um, where are those facilities? How can we track the supplies there? So by making it problem-based, um, and also, as, as uh, Lisa mentioned in the case of the grandchildren, um, you know, find things that um, are motivators for people. Um, it's not necessarily going to be the possibilities of the thing. You need to give them something particular that's going to make them take that risk and make that leap. Um, that's something that they care about. And, you know, in the case of these, these emergencies, if it's going to be possibly finding someone, they're going to want to learn as much as they can about that technology. So it's an opportunity to, so it's pretty awful what's, what's been happening in both Libya and Morocco and, and Maui. And what I, what we're seeing around the world, not to go to another subject, but just to stress the importance of trying to be prepared for these events, crisis events, is that they're happening not only more frequently, but less predictably, yeah. less, uh, you know, more intensely with kind of a shock effect. Um, so, you know, we don't have a lot of time to prepare. We need to, it's not preparing for the next pandemic in a hundred years. It's preparing for for crises and and other critical events that are going to need people to get it together, so to speak. Well, before Elon Musk switches off our Starlink connection between <laughs> California and Singapore, what's next for you? What's next um, on the agenda for the GLP? Lisa, where are you off to next? Uh, I am, well, research-wise or location-wise. <laughs> hey, vacation is preparation. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. So, uh, <laughs> so actually, so uh, I'm actually, my next step uh, is going to bring back everything I learned from this roundtable back to Hong Kong. We are going to re review our like research agenda. What is next coming for uh, AI? What is coming next for big data? I would also like to echo uh, what we just dis just discussed about disasters that hit. I grew up in Taiwan, typhoon, earthquakes are part of our routine. It makes us, you know, I, we don't even like concern about it if, if it's not above a certain like uh, magnitude. Uh, but then, you know, it's about preparedness. Um, you will prepare, you learn, you train, and then you, you do exercise and drills. But they are only to a certain level that you can prepare. So I think technology in this case, I remember there was a huge typhoon. Um, it was actually when we were young, but at the, at the same time, uh, people came together. They started to, because uh, they were flood that sort of took out the, the roads, etc. But people report that they are safe online because uh, they tried to find people. And then so one important thing is to check in to to show that you're you're still you're you're alive and you're here 
you're safe. The second thing is okay, just because of flood, people are stuck in their buildings, like high rises. Then you talked about okay, I still have some, I still have some food here. I have rice, I have here. Whereas people who are like naturally come together, then we can share and coordinate. Um, they need lifeboats to like pick up people who are stuck at a certain place. They are stuck in their home, but they, somehow there is still Wi-Fi and there is still internet. It allows them to like self-coordinate. So I think one thing that we learned from disaster response is that the first responders are local. It's usually the local community, local neighborhood that responded. Like you can't wait for the government and the military to come in to open the roads. Usually, it require local preparedness and local response and societal preparedness. And at that time, we need to. I think as a te as te tech company and hopefully technology developers, like I think if you can empower people to do that, that would be a huge help. Um, so I think that it, things I learned from this roundtable and this podcast, I think we're going to review what is happening in terms of like public sentiment and confidence around it. And then started to identify needs and echoing what Heidi was saying that, you know, how do we motivate people and to adopt certain things and try to dissuade them from doing certain things that may not be helpful to their, to, to their health. Well, well, great. And, and Heidi, we will be on the road again um, in Senegal uh, with global challenges, yes? Yeah, I mean, I think for us in the Global Listening Project, the it's the beginning of the next exciting chapter of our work. I mean, we've been doing a lot of listening around the world, and we will continue to do that. But with this new um, tsunami of data from uh, 71 countries, we have a lot of exciting an analytic time ahead. And while we're doing these roundtables, we'll be feeding into that. But the next few months is going to be a lot of work and trying to really correlate and analyze the different types of questions we've been asking because they cover a range of issues and look at you know what we can present um, not only in the report in December but um, as we roll out during the year what are the implications of this and also look at which areas um, in this broader work we've done do we want to follow over time with our index yeah uh, a busy few months ahead of us. Yeah. Uh, the start of a busy few months leading to a busy few years, no doubt. Well, thank you both very much for your for your time today. Um, it's early morning in Singapore. I should let you go off and get a really good Singaporean breakfast and some lovely hot coffee with um, hot milk. With that, thank you both very much. Thanks. Thank you, Heidi. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much again to Heidi Larson and to Lisa Lin. Um, they are the beating heart of the Global Listening Project. We'll be back with you shortly in uh, Senegal um, and also Tokyo. Uh, a huge thanks to our director and producer, Eric Aspera from NewsDoc Media. Our production coordinator is Waisha Raphael. And our intern is Will Lansdale. So it just finally remains for me to invite you again to uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us five stars. Have a great week and a safe week, everybody. <laughs>